Thank you for joining us, everyone, for our third Bogleheads Live. My name is John Luskin, and I'm the host for today. My co-host for today is Rick Ferry for Bogleheads Needs No Introduction. Rick publishes and speaks on investing and is the host of the Bogleheads on Investing podcast. Today, we'll be discussing fund selection, with Rick having written the book on index funds entitled All About Index Funds. For today, I'll be switching between asking Rick questions that I got beforehand across the various online Bogleheads communities and getting questions from our live audience here today. But before that, let's start by talking about the Bogleheads, a community of investors who believe in keeping it simple, following a small number of tried and true principles. You can learn more at the John C. Bogle Center for Financial Literacy at boglecenter.net. And after three long years, the Bogleheads Conference is back. Mark your calendar for October 12th through 14th. More details will be announced soon. And mark your calendars for future episodes of Bogleheads Live. Next Thursday, April 7th at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time, Larry Swedro will be our guest discussing his new book on sustainable investing. The following week on Thursday, April 14th, 4.30 p.m. Eastern Time, Christine Benz will be joining us discussing asset correlation and sustainable distribution rates. On Thursday, April 21st, the week after, Avantis investors Suheil Wahal will be discussing mutual fund costs. And then the week after that, Thursday, April 28th at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, Eric Belchunas will be discussing his new book, The Bogle Effect, How John Bogle and Vanguard Turned Wall Street Inside Out and Saved Investors Trillions. Before we get started on today's show, a disclaimer, this is for informational and entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment, tax, or other financial planning decisions. Also, this session is being recorded with an edited version later being available for download on Bogleheads. Now, let's start our Q&A with Rick Ferry on fund selection. For my first question from username GhostRayForward on Twitter asks, what do you look for in a fund? Well, that's a good place to start since this is a index fund selection or a fund selection uh, talk. Uh, thank you, John, for doing this. This is my last week and then I'm done and other people will come on and that's great. We just continue to expand this. But today we're talking about individual fund selection. Last week, we talked about asset allocation, and that was recorded, so you could listen to that. Okay, how do I do it? Well, I'm a big index fund believer, so and, and I converted to index funds back almost 25 years ago, and back then, there were just not a lot of index funds available. I think there were two ETFs that were available, and maybe there was 20 different other index funds on the market, and that was it. But what do I look for? Well, I first start with the index. You have to first understand what's in the index. How is the index created? First of all, what was the index originally created for? What was the purpose? And most of the index funds that I use are following an index that was created as a benchmark or as an economic indicator. In other words, like the S&P 500 or a total stock market or a total international or a total bond market, these were originally created as benchmarks for measuring the performance of active managers or they were economic indicators. They only became the basis for investment later on and they became index funds later on, but that wasn't the original reason for creating these. I look under the hood and say, what is inside of this index? Let's say I'm looking for a U.S. stock market index fund. 
I first have to understand all the different U.S. stock market indexes out there. And there are many. In fact, I looked before I got on the call today at just some familiar names as far as the total stock market index funds that are available out there. There's the Fidelity Total Stock Market Index Fund. There's the Fidelity Zero Total Stock Market Index Fund. There's the Vanguard Total Stock Market Index Fund. There's the iShare Total Stock Market ETF. There's the Schwab Broad Market Index Fund. Okay, I just named, I don't know, five or six different, what sounded like all the same fund, but they're not. Every one of them is different. Why are they different? They're different because the underlying index for each one of those things, each one of the funds that I announced is different. For example, the index for the Fidelity Total Stock Market Index Fund, this is FSKAX. This is the one they charge for. The index for that is the Dow Jones Total Stock Market Index, which holds maybe 4,200 stocks, roughly. Now, Fidelity also has the Fidelity Zero Total Stock Market Index Fund, but it's not a total stock market index fund because the index that that fund follows is not the total stock market. It actually follows a different index. It follows the Fidelity Total Stock Market Index. And what's the difference between the Fidelity Total Stock Market Index and the Dow Jones Total Stock Market Index? Well, the Fidelity Total Stock Market Index only has about 2,672, which is about, what, 1,400 fewer stocks than their other total stock market index follows. So which one is the total stock market? It's not the Fidelity Zero Fund. That's, they're not following a total stock market. It's close, now granted. Okay, but when you look at the performance, of the Fidelity Zero Fund following the Fidelity Total Stock Market, which has 1,400 fewer stocks in it, 1,400 fewer microcap stocks in it, you see that the performance of that fund is slightly different than the performance of their Total Stock Market Index Fund and different than the Vanguard Total Stock Market Index Fund and different than the iShare Total Stock Market Index Fund because they're all following slightly different indices. I want the most complete total stock market index fund that I can find, the one that has the most stocks in it, which would be, there's really three out there. There is the Vanguard Total Stock Market Index Fund, which follows the CRISP Total Stock Market. Now, the CRISP is the Center for Research and Security Prices out of the University of Chicago originally. That holds roughly 4,080 stocks. And then there's the S&P Total Stock Market Index Fund, which holds about the same amount of stocks in it. And believe it or not, there's a Dow Jones Total Stock Market Index Fund. Now, Dow Jones and S&P merged, but before they merged, each one of them had their own separate Total Stock Market Index. So one of the indices is the Dow Jones Total Stock Market Indice, which is what the Fidelity Total Stock Market Index, the one you pay for, the FSKAX, that's the index that they follow, that Dow Jones index. And then the iShare ITOT follows the S&P total stock market. Now, they're almost virtually identical uh, between the Dow Jones and the S&P total stock market. When you look at them side by side, which I did, 
they're almost identical. And the CRISP index, which is followed by Vanguard, almost identical, almost the same amount of securities. All, both, all three of these indices have over 4,000 stocks. This is what I'm looking for. So I first have to understand the underlying indices. And there are things out there that are, again, calling themselves total stock market, but are really not. Now, I think Schwab does it the right way. They don't call their fund the a total stock market index fund. They call it a broad market index fund, which to me is a better term. So because they only own 2,500 stocks in there, and that's the index that they followed is actually the Dow Jones broad market index. So a broad market index has about 2,500 stocks. Total market index has 4,000 stocks. So in reality, then, the Fidelity Zero Fund should really be titled the Fidelity Broad Market Index Fund. It would be more appropriate than the total market. I know we're talking about just a few basis points here or there, but to me, it makes a difference because if I'm looking for a total stock market index fund, I want to first understand all the different indices. And so I can pick the funds that actually follow those indices. And so in the end, I come up with my my list. And so my list is the Vanguard Total Stock Market Index Fund or ETF or the Fidelity Total Stock Market Index Fund. They don't have an ETF. Fidelity doesn't have an ETF that follows the uh, total stock market. They just have a, a mutual fund. And then there's the iShare Total Stock, ITOT, which is a uh, an ETF. So uh, you've got two two mutual funds and you've got two ETFs because Vanguard has it both ways, mutual fund and ETF. So this, again, just if you look at my All About Index Fund book, this is the sort of the study that I did. And I did it for every single Indices, the U.S. stock market, the international stock market, the bond market, to understand the underlying indices first and then go find those funds, if they're available, that follow the indice that is the broadest. And so the next step then after I decided on the index is the availability. What's out there? So, so this is the fund, this is the index I want. What's out there? What funds or ETFs are available? that follow that index. And then who is the fund sponsor? Is it a big company like a Fidelity or a uh, Vanguard or a Schwab or somebody? I, I'd rather have a big company name as State Street or so that, that have you know billions of dollars in the fund so that there's liquidity because that's the next step. I want to see a larger fund. I mean, I wouldn't invest in any fund that has less than $100 million in it, but generally I want to see some liquidity in, in the fund itself. And then what's the fee? What's the underlying fee of the fund? You know, there are some that are so close, like the Fidelity Fund is 15 base, uh, 0.15 basis points. The Vanguard Fund is 0 0.03 basis points. The IOT, the iShare is 0 0.03. Okay, those are all within a one and a half basis points. So this is, this is okay, you know. But if one of them was 30 basis points, there was a State Street Fund out there that's 30 basis points calling itself a broad market index. That would, I wouldn't go there. So the fee is important. And then what, whether it's a fund or it's an ETF is important as well, because in a taxable portfolio, I would want to use ETFs. If I'm going to use a mutual fund in a taxable portfolio, there could be a distribution from that mutual fund at the end of the year. And the, you know I have to pay taxes on that, or the clients would have to pay taxes on that. So I would rather choose an ETF for a taxable account. Doesn't make any difference in a a tax deferred account, tax advantage account, tax free account, but it does make a difference in a taxable account. So this is the methodology, the framework that I use for the All About Index Fund book back 20 years ago when I originally wrote the book, and then I updated it 15 years ago. I haven't updated it since, but nothing's changed. 
this is how I go about selecting the funds that I'm going to use for the, or recommend for the clients' portfolios. That's fantastic, Rick. Thank you for sharing all that. That's fascinating with respect to, hey, I've got a broad market fund, but that isn't a total market fund, meaning I'm missing out on more than a thousand different companies, those, those micro caps. Now, because they are so small, it does make a small difference in the return of the fund, but it's still fascinating to realize that you can be missing out on just so much when it comes to broad market versus total market. Liquidity, absolutely. If you're not cautious about that, you could end up paying a bigger bid-ask spread. Uh, that is a fee when you're investing. So naturally, as Bobo heads, we want to keep that fee low. So it's good to have those big name funds. Absolutely. If I could say one more thing, John, if you don't mind. I looked at the 2021 performance. Now, remember, last year, 2021, the S&P 500, the big stocks, outperformed mid-cap and outperformed small-cap. So the S&P last year did like 28.5%, almost 28.66. Therefore, the broad market index funds would have outperformed or should have outperformed the total stock market index fund, right? Which is what happened. I happened to be listening to somebody talk and they were talking about how they love the Fidelity Zero Fund and how the performance was so good. The Fidelity Zero total stock market fund in 2021 did 26.01, a little over 26%. The Vanguard total stock market fund did 25.71. So you could say, well, this Fidelity fund outperformed the Vanguard total stock market fund by 30 basis points in 2021. And if you th- if you thought it was the same index, you would say these people at Fidelity are rocket, you know, rocket scientists. I mean, look look at how much value they're adding. But that's not what happened. What happened was the Fidelity Zero Fund follows a different index. They follow a broad market index, which only digs down to the top 2,500. So you had bigger average market capitalization. So therefore, in a year when large cap stocks outperform small cap and mid cap, that index, that broad market index, the fidelity total market index that they use, which is 2,500 stocks, would have outperformed a crisp index or an S&P total stock market index or a Dow Jones total stock market index, which has 4,000 stocks in it. You would expect that to happen. And that's exactly what happened. So if you're going to look at these things from a performance standpoint and say, well, I'm going to pick my total stock market index fund based on performance, you're going to hone in on the Fidelity Zero, and you're going to hone in on the Schwab uh, broad market index, which did 25.8, so about 12 basis points better. You're going to say, gee, that, that Vanguard fund, that's really not really any good. I mean, look, it really doesn't even perform as well as that Schwab fund or the Fidelity fund. Well, yes, it does. It's just that it's a different index. So again, by understanding how the underlying indexes work and and what's in it and what's not in it, it'll tell you an awful lot. And exactly what we were seeing in the performance last year is exactly what I would have expected. So it answered the question of, well, that's why those two funds outperformed. It's because they weren't full. There wasn't a completed index. They were missing the bottom 1,500 stocks. That is fascinating. So naturally, if we would see a period in the future where small cap, micro cap did better, then holding that total market fund would do better than that broad Mm -hmm. market fund for that time period. That's That's, exactly right. Then it'll outperform. That's super niche. Let me ask one more. Let me throw one more thing. People often, they look at SPY, which is an S&P 500, right? It tracks the S&P 500 and it's a unit trust. So it's full replication. 
it replicates that S&P 500 to the letter. It has to because it's a unit investment trust. And then you've got something like VOO, which is the Vanguard S&P 500 fund or ETF, correct? And you look at it and you go, oh, last year, SPY underperformed VOO. You know, SPY is not a very good fund. It underperformed the Vanguard S&P 500. Well, why did it do that? Well, now you have to understand how the structure of a unit investment trust works versus the structure of an ETF. In a unit investment trust, SPY, the dividends do not get reinvested. The dividends go into a separate escrow account and they're held there until the end of the quarter and then they're distributed out. In a mutual fund, as soon as the stocks pay the dividends or in an ETF, when the stocks pay the dividends, they automatically get reinvested. So in a bull market like you had last year where the S&P 500 went up 26%, automatically reinvesting dividends is going to cause the mutual fund or the ETF that has that structure to outperform SPY. And in a down market, SPY will outperform VOO because the cash from the dividends are going into an escrow account and it's not getting reinvested. So again, understanding how the structure of the fund works is also important. Gosh, that is, that's so fascinating. Those little things that if you're not a super investing nerd, it wouldn't have even occurred to <laughs> yeah, you yeah, to that consider. Yeah. That's, that's so well, neat. when you're looking at performance, in other words, a lot of people look at it, oh, this one's better than that one. But it usually isn't when it comes to indexing. It has to do with the index. It has to do with the structure. It has to do with the fee. Gosh, that's so interesting. Thank you for sharing that, Rick. Let's turn it over to an audience question. I see David has requested to be a speaker, so I'm going to add him as a speaker, and he'll be able to ask his question about fund selection. I just want to say first, thanks for taking my call. And Rick, I've followed your work over the years. I truly appreciate the work you've done and uh, your commitment uh, to this field. So my question is basically, you know, I, I've, I've struggled over the years communicating the idea of indexing versus passive investing, right? And, uh, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, but let me, let me just frame how I think of it. And, you know, if I, if I'm going down the wrong path, just, just let me know. But, you know, I, I go back to, you know, the, the kind of the textbook definition of the market portfolio, you know, that was, I think, first communicated by by William Sharp. You know, you, you want to try to efficiently replicate, you know, the, the market portfolio, right? And my observation over the years is, you know, that's that's been problematic, you know, via, you know, index funds, right? I mean, S&P was not really a truly true market portfolio. Then you got like the extended market, you bolted those together, you got a market portfolio, then you got the total market portfolio, and now you have global portfolios, right? So if you really believe in like the original idea of trying to efficiently, cost effectively replicate a a market portfolio, right? Would you argue that the vast majority, and I think you hinted at this in your, in your opening, would you not argue that the vast majority of index funds are not really passive investment vehicles? And like, for example, this whole idea of personal indexing or factor investing, it's, it's really quite potentially dangerous to the individual investor because they may believe they're getting so-called passive invest- investing via indexes, but it's not really, in essence, what the theory you know, 
efficient markets, et cetera. I mean, I'm not saying that that's all necessarily correct, but they may not be getting what they really think they're they're getting. And over a like a, a you know multiple decade period, this can have a vast potential impact on 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 performance. So that's kind of what I'm. I would love to hear your thoughts on if I've if I've made myself clear. Thank you. No, no, you have. Thank you for that. Indexing has gone from evolution to pollution, right? Spindexing, I call it, special purpose indexing. Look, indexing became so popular that all of a sudden everybody realized money was going to flow into the indexing world. And so everything that used to be active then became an index. In fact, my friend Rob Arnott from Research Affiliates called what he was doing over there, which was active management, quantitative active management, up until the time he came up with the phrase fundamental indexing, right? Very clever. Very clever marketing. And uh, it's quantitative. I mean, they're just doing uh, value factor type and selection and, and factor weighting of their portfolios. But it was a very clever name. And then, you know, beta is the market. So let's call it smart beta, right? It, these are all meant to infer that what we're doing is a better form of indexing. Jack Bogle struggle with this in his last few years. And he, he wanted everybody to start calling it traditional indexing. He tried to coin that phrase. There's all that other stuff, which I call spindexing. And then there's traditional indexing, which is what I talked about earlier on this call. And you have to differentiate the two. And it's difficult when you're talking with uh, investors who don't understand that they hear the marketing spin. That's why I call it spindexing about all this other stuff. And they think that that's a better mousetrap. I mean, Robert Hart had people going. I mean, they really did for a while. And then, of course, value stocks fell off a cliff and that was the end of that. But I mean, he really had people going for a while that what he was doing was indexing when it had really nothing to do with indexing. Yes, it was a mechanical way of doing things. You know, there was a formula for picking stocks, and then another formula for weighting stocks, and then another formula for doing rebalancing and reconstitution of the index that, that he was calling it an index, but it's not an index. However, the Security and Exchange Commission back in 2004 allowed PowerShares to launch quantitative actively managed funds that they followed in Teledex Index. They were the first power shares funds, and they followed these things called IntelliDex indexes, which Bruce Bonds from PowerShares helped create along with the American Stock Exchange. They asked the SEC if they could launch ETFs based on these IntelliDex index, and they, it, could they call it indexing, and could they call it passive? And what the SEC said was, well, as long as you're following an index, then the fund can call itself a passive index fund. So that's what they started saying. We are the new type of passive index fund out there. And as soon as that happened, the whole dam broke. And every, literally everybody started launching all of this active management stuff and calling it an index because they would create an index, out of, come up with some crazy way in which they were going to create it. I mean, you could come up with any way you want. didn't matter. The SEC would say, as long as you had a systematic way of choosing stocks and a systematic way of weighting those stocks in a portfolio. And it was written out in some sort of a formula, if you will, that this is the way you would do it to create the index, then you could call whatever it is. It could be, you know, we're going to create an index of CEOs that are less than five foot eight 
and are left-handed and live west of the Mississippi index. It didn't make any difference what it was. It was an index. And then we're going to weight it by their shoe size. Didn't make any difference. This, this was now an index. And if you then launched an ETF or a mutual fund against that index to benchmark that index, then you were a passive index fund. It was terrible. I mean, it was horrible. And, and it's difficult. But this is what we have to battle against you know, every day. So <laughs> this is why the more and more of that stuff that comes out, the more and more we have to talk about total stock market, U.S., total international, total world fund, total bond fund. We have to talk about being basic, a few good basic funds over and over. The truth has to be repeated over and over again because lies are constantly being told. And it's our job to do that. And that's what I do. I've been doing it for 25 years. And I don't know how long I'll be doing it for. My wife says I'll be doing it till I'm dead. But I don't know. <laughs> Maybe beyond the grave like Jack Bogle. <laughs> that's great. Thank you, Rick, so much. That is a great segue into a related question that we got from Sycamore. A user on the Bogleheads forum uh, who writes, some people speak on Bogleheads about what is tilting and am I doing it right? So Rick, how does one evaluate factor funds? Okay, that's a good question. So let's say that you've done your total stock market, you've done your total international, you got the idea that I just want to be as broad as I possibly can, as low cost. I want to represent the US market, the international market, the world market. And I, this is what I want to represent in the equity of my portfolio. But then I also want to have some icing on the cake. Let's call the total market the cake. And I want to have a little icing on that cake. I want to do things where I might actually get a better rate of return than that. And I've studied my Palmer French three-factor model, and I've learned that value stocks tend to outperform growth stocks or they had outperformed growth stocks over the long term. Small cap stocks had outperformed large cap stocks over the long term. Profitable stocks did outperform over the long term. And so you start getting into the weeds of all of the different ways of which you could do value investing. I mean, there's an infinite number. They call it the factor zoo. An infinite number of ways of which you could do value, momentum, quality, investing. Let's say that you might use price to book. Or in the case of Fama French, it was book to market. It was just sort of the inverse of that. That's how they did their value screens. But there's price to earnings price to cash flow, price to revenue, there's return on equity, enterprise value. I mean, there's a zillion different ways. And then there's multi-factor type ways of figuring out how you're going to do value. And when you look at all these things, they all have kind of the same flavor to them, but they all act a little bit differently. And then you've got size, large cap, mid cap, small cap. Well, where are your cuts? Let's say your S&P. Where does S&P make their cut on size between the S&P, say, 500 large cap, S&P mid cap, S&P small cap? What about call it Morningstar? Morningstar has their cuts between large cap, mid cap, small cap. Then you've got other index providers, uh, Wilshire, MSCI. Where do you make their cuts? Uh, State Street, where do they make their cuts between large cap, mid cap, small cap? Well, from the size perspective, Everybody sort of makes their cuts almost kind of in the same place. So Russell small cap 
is going to perform pretty much like S&P, Dow Jones type small cap, crisp type small cap. I mean, they were all going to kind of outperform. They're going to all kind of perform, I should say, fairly similar mid cap the same way. So the cuts that all these index providers make for size are fairly you know, close. But when it comes to value, it's all over the place. I mean, value is in the eyes of the beholder. So you have to know all these different value strategies and you have to make a determination, which one am I going to use? Or am I going to use some sort of a multi factor strategy of some sort, which brings all of these things together. That's number one. This is complexity, right? This is way beyond total stock market. Now, this is getting really into the weeds of what I call complexity. And so once you make this determination that, okay, I have decided I want to do this. I have decided I want to do some factor investing. So how do you go about selecting funds? Well, I think a multi-factor approach works best because you're only going to take a small portion of your portfolio and you're going to do this with it. And I don't recommend any more than 25% of your equity going into this because you're going to do a multi-factor approach. That means you're going to do value plus quality plus momentum plus size. Those four things, which tend to be the most prevalent, rolled up in just one fund. So it ends up being a small cap value fund that has quality stocks and momentum. And the momentum is basically the final screen where if a stock is going down, they don't buy it until it flattens out and starts going up again, and then they would buy it. So it's a multi-factor approach. Okay, so that's what I'm going to look for. Now, I want to pick the fund that has the most of this in it that I can possibly get. I don't want beta. I'm not looking for a market return here. That's, I want this factor juice. That's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for that. I want a very concentrated small cap value factor fund, the most concentrated that I can get. That's what I then go to look for. So now I have to look at, okay, what's S&P using for their index? What, what's DFA using? Even though they don't have indexes, how are they doing it? What are all these other index, you know, small cap value index providers using that gives me this very deep concentration that I'm looking for? And then I come up with my list. It might be a list of maybe 10 that I could go deeper into. And then I look at the years when small cap value on all spectrums, all different types of small cap value, all did poorly. All did poorly. So large cap growth did very well, and small cap value did very poorly. And I'm looking for the fund that did the poorest of the poor. I mean, I want the absolute dog. I want the dog. Because that means that that fund has what I'm looking for. I'm looking for those things that did horrible when this whole sector of the market did terrible. I want the worst one. But I also want it in a package where it's low fee, okay? In other words, I don't want to be paying, you know, 100 basis points for this or 75 basis points, but it's got to be less than 50 and better off if it's less than, say, 30. So it's got to be low fee. I want it in an ETF because I don't want to get capital gain distributions if I'm going to do this in a taxable account. So I whittle it down, whittle it down, whittle it down, whittle it down, and I actually end up coming up with basically three funds is what I tell people about. There is the... The first one, the oldest one, is the Invesco S&P 600 Pure 
value. And I'm not going to get into how the index is created and all that, but it's a very pure, concentrated, small cap value fund. It was really the first one that was available in the ETF form, and it's the one I bought whenever it was available. So I actually own that fund. The next one that came along was the Avantis small cap value fund. Then I had Eduardo Repetto on my podcast, and we were talking about that fund last month. And it's only 25 basis points, very concentrated, small cap value, ETF, good fund. And the last one that was just came out last year is the DFA ETF. Finally, DFA finally launched ETFs. And DFAT is that symbol. It's DFA targeted value, I believe is, uh, is what it is. It's an ETF. So you've got RZV, which is the Invesco fund, AVUV, which is the Avantis Fund and DFAT, which is the DFA. Those are the three, you know, really deep, concentrated, low cost, small cap value funds that I use in my, you know, when I, when I make a recommendation. And on the international side, I, I also recommend the Avantis Fund. And it's a small cap international value. So that's what I, I'm using now. Or at least I recommend. That's fantastic, Rick. Thanks for sharing that. So just with respect to, our plain vanilla, very simple part of our portfolio, we want to manage costs, and naturally, we want to manage tax efficiency as well. Folks, we have time for one more audience question. If someone is going to be super quick and hit that mic request icon button, I can go ahead and have you ask your question. John, thanks for hosting this space. Rick, really appreciate your insight here. The question that I have is, do you have research on if any of the best times to be invested in an index and the best times to be invested in, say, a more active approach? Are there times across the market where active investing is actually advantageous for a short period or in a window, and then you can roll back into a, a passive index model would love to hear your thoughts on that. Thanks. Well, I've never been able to do that, but I appreciate what you're saying. I've thought about it for, for many years. Is, is there an opportunity to go active and then come back and go passive? And here's what it ends up being. Active managers are messy. Indexes are pure. And what do I mean by that? This is something called the Dunn's Law, and maybe the Bogleheads who are listening on this will know who I'm talking about. A fellow by the name of Steve Dunn came up with this, I want to say 20 years ago. And what he realized is that active managers don't stay in their style box. They don't. They drift. So when you're looking at a place where active managers may have outperformed the indices, you'll find them in the style box, the Morningstar style box, you know, growth value, large, small, you'll find them in the style box that did the worst. It did the worst. So let's say small cap value did very poor. Okay. Large cap growth did very well. Small cap value did very poor. That's where you're going to find the active managers that outperformed those index funds. And why is that? It's because the active managers don't stay in their style box. They drift. If you actually drill down and look and see what they own, they might own 50% small cap value, but maybe they own some mid cap growth. Maybe they own some 
large cap core, I mean, active managers can go anywhere they want, and they do. And they'll let their portfolio drift to a different part of the style box. It won't be in the center like the index will. It'll be up in the upper right-hand corner or something. And if that's the case, if that manager happens to be up there and that style box underperforms, it's going to make that manager look really, really smart. Now, were they smart? No, probably not. They just happened to be there at that particular time. But it makes it look as though they're out, they're outperforming. So you could sit to yourself all day long. You could say, well, maybe I should be in the small cap value space. Maybe I should be using active managers there rather than index funds because, look, more active managers outperform. It's, it's just a phenomenon called Dunn's Law that occurs where what goes around comes around. And when small cap value starts outperforming again, that manager will underperform. So if you can pick the style box that's going to underperform next year, then and you wanted to invest in that segment of the market and you knew it was going to underperform, then you probably should use active management because they're going to be very messy in their stock selection and they're probably going to outperform the index. But if you think that portion of the market, let's say large cap growth, is going to outperform, then you want to buy the index because the index will outperform the managers. Okay, in the end of this whole thing, it's like, am I really going to try to do this? And the answer is no. It, it doesn't make any sense to try to do it. But just buy the market and don't be messing with it. It's a good question, though. I mean, we've all who have been around thought about this for a while. And back when I was in college, uh, I was getting my master's degree in the 1990s. I wrote a paper on this very topic of trying to pick active managers in certain segments that I thought we're going to outperform it. And, and it didn't work because when the market came my direction and that part of the market that I was work, you know, trying to find these active managers in, when that part of the market actually outperformed, all the managers that I picked underperformed because they were very messy in their selection. Anyway, I hope that helps. Rick, that's fantastic. Thanks so much for sharing that. One thing that I hear as a lot as a pitch for active management is, oh, active management does better during down markets. But the reason is, to the exact point you just made, that's because of style drift. It's an apples to oranges comparison. Well, folks, that is all the time that we have for today. Rick, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Once again, pleasure to have you. And thank you for everyone else who joined us today for Bogleheads Live. Our next Bogleheads Live will be on Thursday, April 1st, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. We'll be discussing sustainable investing with Larry Swedro. The week after that, we'll be discussing asset correlation and sustainable distribution rates with Christine Benz of Morningstar. Between now and then, you can submit your questions on sustainable investing for Larry and other questions for Christine on the Bogleheads forum at bogleheads.org and on Bogleheads Reddit. Until then, you can access that very Bogleheads forum, the Bogleheads wiki, Bogleheads Reddit, Bogleheads Facebook, Bogleheads Twitter, Bogleheads YouTube channel, my personal favorite, Bogleheads local chapters, virtual chapters, international chapters, and conferences and books. The John C. Bogle Center for Financial Literacy is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. At BogleCenter.net, your tax-deductible contributions are greatly appreciated. Thank you again, everyone, for showing up today. I look forward to seeing you all again next Thursday, April 1st at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time, where we'll have Larry Swedro discussing his new book on sustainable investing. Until then, have a great week.